Genesis 12, verses 10 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to his wife Sarai, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me. But they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. It became, it came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. This is the word of the Lord. The last time that we gathered on the Lord's day, we considered the first 10 verses of the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis. We saw the call of Abram out of pagan idolatry and into the light of God's salvation. <clears throat> we learned that Abram did nothing to receive this merciful call. It was a gracious call from God, as it is with all who are called up from the grave to salvation in Jesus Christ. God called Abram to leave his country, to leave his relatives, to leave his father's house and go to the land that God promised to Abram and his and his descendants. Abram had no idea where he was going, and yet he obeyed the call and command of God to leave everything, to become a pilgrim on the earth. Abram was looking forward to a city, not necessarily an earthly city, but a heavenly city whose builder and designer is God. In these promises, we are shown the beginnings of the Abrahamic covenant, all of the elements of the promises of the covenant are present and are revealed by further steps as we progress in the book of Genesis. God promises to give Abram a land. God promises to give Abram a nation, to make him into a great nation, to bless those who bless and to curse those who curse, and that through Abram, the skull-crushing seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15 would come. And Abram would be a partaker, a partaker in that redemption. Abram's response to all of these precious promises of God was worship. As a uh, display of Abram's belief, Abram builds an altar and worships God. This is what we covered last week. Now then, today, with God's help, we shall consider just three points concerning the remaining verses of chapter 12. Number one. Abram's faith is tested in Canaan. Number one, Abram's faith is tested in Canaan. Uh, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. 
for the famine was severe in the land. We have previously stated, Abram has been called out of Ur, a land, to a land that God has promised that he would give to Abram and his descendants. That land was the land of Canaan. We are told in Genesis 3.17 that this land, the land of Canaan, was a prosperous land. In fact, it was a land that the Bible describes as, as flowing with milk and honey. A very prosperous land. God has promised to give that prosperous land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of Canaan, to Abram and his descendants. And yet, it is interesting that when Abram arrives in this prosperous land of Canaan, it was already occupied. Abram arrives to a land that is filled with inhabitants. The Canaanites were living in the very land that God promised he would give to Abram. The Lord God uh, said to Abram when he arrives into this land, that, that land, verse 7, to your descendants, I will give this land. Now, this should be great cause for concern for Abram. How will God give this land to Abram if this land is already inhabited by people? People are already claiming this land. Abram shows up and God says, this is yours. It would appear that this would be a test from God. Abram has already been tested when he was called or commanded by God to leave his country. That was a test. To leave his relatives. That's a test. To leave his father's household. This is a test from God. To go to a land that God would show him. And now he's in that land. God called him to this land and it is inhabited. Occupied by Canaanites. Go to the land of Canaan. And the Canaanites are living there. Abram was being tested by God. And what was Abram's response to God's test? Abram believed God. How do we know once again that Abram believed God? The Bible says in verse 7, he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Abram's response to the promise of God in spite of the, the obstacles that appeared to be standing in the path of God's promises to be fulfilled, was to build an altar and to worship God. Abram's building of this altar was an act of faith. God had made promises, and those promises appeared to be accompanied with obstacles. Abram believed God and worshipped God in spite of the apparent obstacles that were before him. Now, we are not sure how long Abram was in this land. We are told in verse 9 that Abram journeyed on. So he is in the land of Canaan and he is traveling within Canaan to the Negev. Until it came about in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. Abram had been called from his original home of Ur. To a place that we can assume there was a, enough bread and provision. Ur, we assume, was a place with enough bread, with enough provision. God is calling him from that land to the land of Canaan. To a land that will be later described as flowing with milk and honey. So God is calling him from one land that is at least able to sustain him and his family. To another land that will be even more prosperous than the land he's come from. A land, as we have saying again, flowing with milk and honey. And while he is going to this otherwise more prosperous land, there is something surprisingly that takes place. Famine strikes the land. 
And not just famine, but severe famine, as the scriptures describe. Not, not merely a season of low crops. The scriptures emphasize again that it was severe, so severe that it caused Abram and his family who have just arrived, or so we can assume, to this promised land, this otherwise prosperous land, to say we have to, we have to leave. This land can no longer sustain us. We will die if we stay here. It is not the Canaanites who are driving Abram out of the land. It is not giant adversaries that are driving Abram out of the land. Listen, it is hunger that is driving Abram and his family out of the land. It is if we stay here, we will die that is driving Abram out of the land. What must Abram have thought? Lord, this is the land that you were giving to me. This land of famine is the promised land. This land of famine and drought. Surely not, Lord. With this severe famine, Abram may have been tempted to despise God's calling. You are calling me from a land where I was sustained to a land now where there is famine. With this famine, severe famine, Abram may have been tempted to to doubt the promises of God. With this severe famine, Abram may have been tempted altogether to possibly forsake the promise of God, to not believe the promise of God and return to Ur of the Chaldees from whence he came. Perhaps Abram, because of this famine, may have been tempted to believe that somehow he misheard the call of God. Or even worse, it had truly not been called by God after all. And with this famine, Abram is once again, Abram's faith is once again tested by God. Abram or Abraham, the man who was tested by God, that will become the, the motif of Abram's life. He will be known as the man of the father of faith, but it is often because he is so often tested by God, his faith. And with this famine, we are witnesses, again, of yet another test of Abram's faith. Famines have a way of causing doubts to arise in even the most faithful of God's elect. When, fa when faced with trouble and difficulty, we are far too quick to judge the providences of God. When faced with difficult challenges... We are far too quick to judge those difficulties as signs that God has not blessed the path that lies ahead. When that, that we are on the wrong path because of trouble and that if we persist, then trouble will, will become even worse. We judge open doors and clear paths as God's providential blessing and favor. And when met with closed doors and rocky terrain, we judge as God's rejection. And curse of our course. Now keep in mind that we are speaking about following God. My dear brothers and sisters. When faced with difficulty. Or even when faced with blessings that lie behead us. Or ahead of us. Let us not presume to know the secret will of God. Let us not assume. That because difficulty lies ahead. Then we know exactly what God is doing. Or because blessings appear to be before us. That we know exactly what God is doing. 
being met with difficulties on the narrow road, following Christ to heaven, does not always mean that we are on the wrong road. Just because we are met with difficulty does not mean we are on the wrong path. We must not be so quick to judge the providences of God based upon how difficult or how well things may be going in our lives. That is no way to live. Because God never promises that the narrow road will be filled with a bed of ease. Nor does God promise to exempt His children from unexpected, sorely wounding providences. They will touch us all. In fact, sorely wounding providences are the normal experience of the Christian life. They are the norm. Without having this biblical perspective of sore providences that touch our lives, we will become prisoners of circumstance. Rising and falling depending on the kind of circumstances that touch our lives. When the Bible teaches us in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Think about the promises for the believer in this temporal world. John uh, 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. It is a promise from God. Matthew 5, we should expect persecution. John 15, the world will hate you. When we come to the epistles, we are told to endure hardship, to suffer patiently. In all of these difficulties, we are never meant to assume that difficulties on the road to heaven mean that we are not on the road to heaven. That our path has not been blessed by God. The only way to judge the providences of God, and I say that very loosely, is by evaluating our obedience to the commands of God. When we obey the commands of God, we can rest in knowing that we are on the right path. In spite of the difficulty that may arise, we are obeying God's word. Therefore, we can rest. God is with me. As we are following Christ, of course, ask yourself, when difficulty comes, am I faithfully obeying what God has commanded? Though things may be difficult, though the road may be hard, am I compromising in any way that which God has revealed in His Word? And if the answer is no, no, I am acting in obedience. I am obeying God's Word. Then come what may, God has blessed my path and He has honored in my obedience. Trouble. Trouble must never obscure the promises of God. The promises of God obscure the troubles. Did you hear that? Trouble must never obscure God's promises. It is the reverse. God's promises obscure the trouble. When trouble comes, I focus not on the trouble. I focus on God and His promise. And it helps me to endure the trouble. To push through the trouble. There will be trouble. But the Christian must rest in the fact that Christ has overcome the world. That will hate you. The world will hate you, but know that it hated him first. Jesus promises in John 16 that this temporal grief will be turned to joy. When you uh, are persecuted for righteousness sake, rejoice for the kingdom of heaven is yours. It belongs to you. Suffer hardship patiently. And when you suffer hardship patiently, know that there is laid up for you a treasure in heaven. The kingdom of heaven belongs to you. For the young believer, not young in age, 
but young in your walk with Christ. You will do well to learn this as soon as possible. That good beginnings are often immediately followed by times of difficulty. Good beginnings are often immediately followed, immediately followed by times of difficulty. And for the sake of this sermon, times of famine, if you will, severe famine, if you will. We get saved. The Lord graciously opens our eyes to see the depths of our sin, our great need for a savior uh, in faith that he provides. We turn to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and there is a season of heavenly bliss. All is well with our soul. We sing along loudly. It is well with our soul. And yet, it is not long before then that our faith in Christ is tested by severities, by severe famines. They could be testings of financial severities, uh, occupational severities, residential severities. Or it may be the testing of sincerity as you are faced with temptation after temptation. And what is heaven's answer to these tests? In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, the genuineness or the authenticity of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When the tests have come, they have come to challenge you with one simple question. Do you really believe what you have confessed? Do you really believe what you have confessed? Is it sincere? If it is, you will press on. If it is, you will press on. And as you press on with God's help, know that these trials are God's ordained means of refinement. They are God's ordained means of refining you, making you as pure gold. They are times of accelerated sanctification. Let's speed this process up. And though the trial may be severe, it is necessary for our souls. God is bringing us to fire that we might be conformed to his will and his way. And that less of us may be present in our pursuits and more of him. The Lord always and ever has our best before him in his will. He's the gardener who lovingly, though often painfully, prunes his branches. Those who are united to him in the vine, Jesus Christ. Why? So that we may bear much fruit. I heard a story years ago from my father who was talking about a a farmer who was trying to uh, produce fruit in a plant in his garden. And he came to an expert because every time he tried a different method of producing fruit, still the plant produced no fruit. So we called upon an expert and said to him, I've tried thus and I've tried so, and yet still there is no fruit coming from this tree. And the farmer or the expert said to the person planting the tree, beat it. The person planted the tree said, beat the tree. Yes, beat the tree. Why in the world would I beat the tree? And the expert said, for when you beat the tree, the tree has a defense mechanism. 
in which it will produce fruit in order to save its own life. Well, in our own lives, now, whether that or not that story is true, if there are any uh, agriculturalists here, and I may be wrong, I'm just telling you the story. I don't know if it's true or not, but I know what one thing that is true. That God puts us through difficulties that we may bear much fruit for his glory and for his honor. Calvin says the servant of God must always contend against many obstacles. We must hold fast when, as it were, famine arises and strikes in our lives. Though we be perplexed, we must never despair. We must stay the course and not be deterred from our faith in Christ. We must not let our eyes be clouded by what is seen. But we must ask God to help us keep our eyes on that which is not seen, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, where did this severe famine come from? Where did it come from? Is it not strange that almost immediately after Abram and his family are settled in this new land, this promised land, that severe famine strikes the land? Where did the famine come from? The famine came from God. In the land that will be known as a land flowing with milk and honey, God willed that this would be the land of testing for Abram. And it will later become the land of testing for Abram's posterity for generations to come. Each of these tests would serve as a means of separating what? The sheep from the goats. These tests would always expose those who would bow down to the golden calf and those who would only worship God alone. The famine came as a means of testing Abram's faith and conforming him to Christ in the process. Now then, our second point, Abram's faith is tested in Egypt. This is verses 11 through 16. I'm not going to read them. Abram has left the promised land in search of resources so that he and his family might survive this famine. So they traveled to Egypt. God in his providence has so ordered that there be famine and scarcity in one land while there be overflow and plenty in another. So Abram travels to that land. As Abram and his companions are approaching Egypt, Abram devises a plan that he hopes will provide safety and prosperity while they are sojourning through the land of Egypt. Verse 11, it came about when he came near Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And they will kill me. They will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. And that I may live on account of you. As they travel down to Egypt, Abram believes that danger lies ahead. On account of Sarai's beauty. Danger lies ahead on account of Sarai's beauty. Sarai is around the age of 65 at this time. It is very likely that 65 in that day was not like 65 in our day. Sarai will live to be 127 years old. And it could be that she was very well in the prime of her life when they entered Egypt. During this time, it was not abnormal Think about this, men. It was not abnormal for one man to kill another man. 
just for the purpose of taking his wife. And Abram believes that as he is preparing to enter Egypt, a foreign land, that he will encounter many admirers of Sarai. So he is on guard. It is believed that Sarai, listen to this, was fair-skinned, light-skinned. And they were entering into a land where most women were darker, Egypt. Sarai would have then stood out as being uniquely beautiful. So Abram instructs his wife to give a half-truth. Say that you are my sister. It is a half-truth because Sarai is Abram's half-sister. We learn later that Abram and Sarai have the same father, Terah. But it's not a complete truth, is it? While Sarai is Abram's sister, half-sister, she is also Abram's wife. And because of that, he believes that he is in danger of losing his own life. So he asks his wife to do something drastic, something dangerous, something sinful. He asks his wife to lie on his behalf. Now, we shall come to that in a moment. But Abram also has something else in mind with this deceptive plan. During this time, when a woman's father was not present or alive, it was the responsibility of the oldest brother to entertain possible suitors for his sister's hand in marriage. These admirers, these suitors, they would attempt to gain this woman's hand by paying the brother with a variety of goods. We'll see this later on in Pharaoh's response in giving of gifts to Abram. It is believed that Abram was not necessarily trying to uh, not claim his wife, but Abram was trying to buy time for him and his family as they waited for famine to pass. What will he do? He will entertain different suitors. Oh, you'd like my sister Sarai. What do you have for me? Oh, I don't think that's going to be good enough. Oh, what do you have for me? So Abram was essentially going to try to entertain different suitors, essentially buying time until the famine passed and they could leave Egypt and return to the land of Canaan. It's a dangerous plan. A plan that requires that Sarai lie on Abram's behalf. And Abram also believes, and, I'm, and, and you will also be lying on your behalf as well. You will not only save me, but you'll save yourself as well. They've left trouble in Canaan. Only to enter far more trouble in Egypt. Why? Because Abram is using his wife as a shield to protect himself from danger. He said it himself, say you're my sister so they don't kill me. Say you're my sister so that it may go well with me. Abram may in some twisted way be looking out for his wife, but ultimately Abram is looking out for himself. He's committing the same sin of Adam. He is using his wife as a shield to protect himself from danger. What did Adam do when confronted with his own sin? The woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. You gave her to me. It's her fault and your fault, God. Abram is called to lay down his life for his wife. And instead he is asking his wife to lay down her life for him. To lay down her honor, to lay down her chastity, to, 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 to possibly even lay down her own life for Abram's sake. He's calling his wife to sin. Now, as we read through this, it may not seem like such a big deal. It may not appear to be a gross sin. 
But the dangers that lie behind this lie, this sin, were grossly underestimated by Abram. Listen, as are all of our sins. A little here, a little there. We all so often underestimate our own sin and the effects of that sin. Husbands, men of God, we must not only not, but we must never place our wives in positions to sin. Amen. Husbands, we must not cause them to sin or be the ones who cause their stumbling. We must not to suggest or instruct our wives to violate God's commands for our sakes. And wives, listen to me closely, wives, you are under no obligation to violate God's commands, God's law, out of submission to your husbands. Some women, well-intending, obediently or obediently follow their husband's ungodly leadership in belief that they are somehow being good, submissive wives. All the while, they disobey the commands of Christ, their true husband. Women, your true husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, is not honored, is not pleased when we place the desires of our husbands above the the desires and commands of Christ. Women, you do not protect your husbands when you lie for them. And men, you do not protect your wives when you ask them to lie or place them in positions to lie for you. Men, we must not stay home on the Lord's day, forsaking the assembling of the saints and the worship of God while our wives come to church equipped with lies to cover our sin. Tell them I'm sick. Tell them that I'm achy. Tell them that I'm working. Or what is worse, you leave them to think of their own lie in order to cover our own sin of abandoning and forsaking the worship of God and the assembling of the saints. We do not guard or protect anyone when we act in these sinfully shameful ways. The Apostle Paul commands, husband, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water by the word. Men, husbands, men of God. We are to lovingly lead our wives in the ways of the Lord. We are to see Christ as our example of how to lovingly shepherd and be husbands to our wives. We are to be, in a sense, Christ to our wives. We are to lay down our lives for our wives. And the first and greatest way that we might love our wives as Christ loved the church is when we guide her in the ways of the Lord. Thus purify her by bringing her to God's word, shepherding her through worship and truthfulness of God's word. When we fail to pray with, with our wives and for our wives, when we fail to bring God's word to bear upon our wives' lives, when we live in ways that display our own disobedience to God's word, brothers, we will be held responsible and accountable for our disobedient neglect of loving our wives the way that God has commanded us to love our wives. We have often spoken about family worship or family devotions in the home. It's a command from God. 
Twice in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6 and chapter 11, we are commanded to teach our children and our families God's word when we sit, when we walk, when we lie down, when we rise. It is a lifestyle, not just a 10 minutes of worship or 15 minutes of worship, however long your time of worship is, but it is a lifestyle to be lived out every single moment of the day as you are shepherding both your wives and your children to the glory of God. What will we, who are believers in Christ, men, what will we say when we are asked to give an account for our stewardship over our families? For our stewardship over our wives who are gifts to us. For our stewardship over our children who are gifts to us and also arrows that we are to shoot out into the world. I was too tired. I know I was supposed to, but I just, I just never did. I didn't want to. Do we know the rich blessings that will be found in our wives and in our children when we lead them in the ways of the Lord? Men, repent. Repent of your lack of leadership. And then repent to your wives for the ways in which you have failed to guard them, shepherd them, and purify them. Begin to obey God. Ask others how they might help you understand how to lead your wife, how to lead your children. I promise you from God's word, you won't be sorry. Men, don't use that as an excuse. I don't want to go on my way to ask. Why not? You have men here who are practicing family worship, who are discipling their wives, and you fail to ask them. How do you do that? Put your pride down. Be a man. Be a real man. A man of God. Who wants to know, how do I shepherd her? How do I shepherd them? And listen, even those who are doing it, myself, we are still learning we're still growing in how we shepherd. I'm still learning my wife and, and her tendencies. She's still learning me and my tendencies. We are still seeing our son as he grows and some of the differences that, that he goes through every single day. It will not be perfect. You will not see cherubim and, and, and angels flying around your house. It will be work. It will be difficulty. Gathering little ones to sit down, telling them to be quiet, telling them not to, to fiddle and to fuss. But that which it produces is so worth the effort. And you will not be sorry. Abram sought to protect protect himself. Now, then something unexpected happens when he enters the land. Sarai was noticed. That was expected. She is specifically noticed, though, by the officials of Pharaoh. Abram expects his wife to be noticed. Abram does not expect his wife to be noticed by Pharaoh's officials. Those who worked for for Pharaoh. They go and report the beauty of Sarai to Pharaoh. And now Abram has a problem that has escalated on a royal scale. The, The king wants Abram's wife now. Oh, she is beautiful. Bring her to me. As a potential suitor, Pharaoh attempts to pay Abram, the older brother, to give so that Abram might give his sister to the king 
in marriage. Verse 16. Therefore he treated Abram well for his sake, for her sake, and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. It's one thing to ward off uh, the common suitor. It's quite another thing to attempt to ward off the king of Egypt who wants your wife. Pharaoh figures he's paid a fair price for Sarai and he takes Sarai into his harem. You may remember harem from the book of Esther. Harem is the place where all of the wives of the king would stay and they would go through a process of purification before they were brought before the king to consummate their marriage. Sarai is taken to this harem, if you will. Now, all of this trouble. All of this trouble. Why? Because of a half lie. All of this drama. Because of a sin suggested by a man who should have protected his wife. Because of disbelief in the promise of God. Which leads us to our next point. Verse number three, Abram is rebuked. Abram is rebuked. I love seeing people write down notes. That is so encouraging. As Sarai is in the house of Pharaoh, the Lord strikes the house of Pharaoh with great plagues. Uh, Great plagues in Egypt. Striking the house of Pharaoh. Sound familiar? We will see this later when we come to the book of Exodus. It's a foreshadow of the days of Moses. It is possible that the entire house was touched by plagues all of the people in the house of Pharaoh, except for Sarai, which led to further investigation. This is all a possibility. And after further investigation, it is is discovered that Sarai is the wife of Abram. Pharaoh's house was touched by God for the sake of Abram. And Pharaoh didn't even know he was mistreating Abram. It is possible that there was a time for Sarai, again, to be presented to Pharaoh. And that time was approaching. And God intervenes. Why? Because God has promised that through Abram, a nation shall rise. And also through Abram, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Abram may not have been completely aware of the fact that Sarai was included or a part of this great promise. That through Sarai, even, this promised child, Isaac, would soon come. It, it, it was this promise that would later make Sarai laugh. At the possibility of a woman her age bearing a child. She would give birth around the age of 80. God was preserving his promise. By protecting Sarai. And also forwarding his plans and purposes of redemption. Now, in order for uh, God to further this plan of redemption. Think about this. Pause for a second. Think about this. In order to further the plans of God's redemption. The Lord uses Pharaoh, an unbelieving pagan, to set Abram, who's gone off course, back on course. Verse 18, then Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Imagine. Take her and go. Pharaoh will say this again later to the Egyptians. Pharaoh asked a simple question. Here's the question. Are you ready for it? It's very deep. It's very profound. Why did you lie? Why 
did you lie to me? Imagine that. The unbeliever rebuking the believer. For something the believer should have known and practiced. Don't lie to me. Why does Pharaoh know that lying is wrong? Because God's law has been written on his heart. Because God's law has been written on his heart. He's not a, a believer in God. He's not a, a, a worshiper of Yahweh, but he knows lying is wrong. What's the rebuke? It is through the mouth of an unbeliever that the Lord rebukes and reminds Abram of the promises of God that he's lost sight of. He's not just rebuking him for lying. He's rebuking him for taking sight, taking his eyes off of the promises of God. God promised to give Abram a land. And when famine strikes the land, Abram doubts the promises of God and flees the land. God promises to make Abram into a great nation. And now he's placing his wife, the one through through whose womb the nation will be birthed through. He's placing her in jeopardy of becoming another man's wife. God has promised to bless those who bless Abram and to curse those who curse him. And upon entering Egypt, what's his fear? He's afraid for his life. God's promise, I'll bless you. I'll bless those who bless. I will curse those who curse you. If someone tries to kill you, they will be struck down. Abram didn't believe. And God preached the gospel to Abram, revealing to him the covenant of grace and promising that he shall be a partaker of the covenant of grace and that the skull-crushing seed of the woman would come through him. And what has Abram done? He's done what we most often do. He's taken his eyes off of Christ. He's fixed his eyes on that which is seen rather than that which is unseen. As we see Abram, we must learn, we must all learn, like Abram, that God's elect, his people who have been called out of the grave, that we often willingly fall into sin. You know, we, when we think of, of falling into sin, we think of it as an accident. I fell into sin. Abram willingly jumped into a pit of sin. Even after our conversion, even after Abram's conversion, we often fail to live up to that which we have confessed that we believe. We take our eyes off of Christ. Abram started off well, but it is not long after that he refers to the cunning ways of a man from Ur. And if we see his children, Isaac, and especially Jacob, we will see that the fruit doesn't fall too far from the tree. For they are just as cunning as their father, Abram. The Lord uses this test to expose what? What does the Lord use this test to expose? Listen close. Remaining sin. As each test is intended to expose remaining sin in our lives. And upon exposing remaining sin to bring conviction that will lead to repentance, that will lead to life. How many things did you think were left behind when you say, with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, I place my faith in the one who can save, the only one who can save me from my sin. And then not long thereafter, 
You perform an act. You think a thought. You do a deed that you thought was left with the old man. And what does God do? He brings us through tests and trials and temptations to expose. There is yet remaining sin and you must never to be too far away from the gospel. You need to continually repent and be repenting of sin and turning to Christ every single time. Of all people, of all the people that God could have used, he uses an unbelieving, uh, unbelieving pagan, the king of Egypt, to expose and rebuke Abram's sin. Can you imagine? How many unbelievers have told you, what are you doing? You don't belong here. I thought you were a believer. What are you doing with us? And you're all of a sudden reminded by an unbeliever to get back on track. Pharaoh, he returned Sarai to her husband, Abram, along with all that Abram possessed. And listen, and that includes all that was given to Abram by Pharaoh when he was trying to take her as his wife. Take all of this and go. Abram gets blessed when he goes to Egypt. Abram begins to acquire sheep and oxen and donkey and so forth, men servants and maidservants. Abram will become rich. But God did not bless Abram's actions. Listen to this. God embarrassed Abram's actions. All that God has promised, all that Abram has done in disbelief, and in the end, God has kept his promise in spite of Abram's disbelief. It is like a child who cries and whines and moans and all, all day because they want you to give them something. And all the while, you've already gotten it. And when they receive it, hopefully if they're a good child, they feel ashamed of their attitude. They feel ashamed of how they've acted, knowing that you would keep your promise, that you would do what you said you would do. My son does that to me sometimes. Dad, can we get that game? Yeah. Did I tell you we would get that game? Yeah. Yes. We'll go on throughout our day and he'll begin to act and ask. Son, did I already tell you I was going to get you that game? Yeah, you did. And it's in the mail already and I bring it out to him and he just is excited. Now, son, didn't I tell you that I would take care of you? That I would give that to you? Yeah. Don't forget that the next time you keep bugging me about will I do, will I do, will I do. But ultimately, why did God keep his promise in spite of Abram's actions? Because there is nothing that we can do to thwart the plans of God. There is nothing that we can do to deter the purposes and plans of God. God has promised and God will bring it to pass. God has promised to bring many sons to glory. And he will not be deterred in that eternal plan. Now, in all that we've said, what could we say in closing? First, in times of testing, remember, remember that God's promises, that God promises, that God's promises. Now, let me say this. Remember in times of testing that God promises his unfailing presence with his people. When you go through times of testing, you are not alone. He has promised to never leave you and never forsake you. And more than that, he has promised to be the indwelling helper of his children. 
to be an ever-present help by His Holy Spirit and those who are His. Secondly, know that God assures that not one of the unexpected providences that touch the lives of His children, not one of them are unexpected by God. They are a part of His eternal will and purpose and plan. God sovereignly is willing all things for His glory. And when providences and, and trouble and, and even good things arise in our lives, they are not puzzle pieces for us to try to figure out. Rather, the, the truth of the sovereignty of God is a pillow that we are to rest our heads on at night. He is in control. And he has always meant all of the things that he does in this history of life. He means them always for his glory and for the good of his people. Which is the final point of our encouragement. These often sore providences that touch our lives are meant ultimately for for joy. And not for pain. Although they may be painful as you are going through them, they are ultimately, that's an important word, ultimately meant for our joy. For in these providences, we are being conformed to the likeness of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. We will be tested by God. When tests come, they are meant to expose and remove remaining sin. They are a means of accelerated sanctification. They are the normal experience of the Christian life. So keep your eyes fixed on Jesus when they come. I close with the words from the hymn from John Newton. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek that all thy all in me. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't let trouble and test deter you. God will keep his promise. Let us stand.